Our uh, scripture comes from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And you can find it on page 1497 on your pew Bibles. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this to take place to fulfill what the, prophet, what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But she had no union with her until she had gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. In every really great piece of art, the beginning is meant to make a lot more sense when you come to the end. In a good symphony, the beginning draws out notes that you're going to return to later in the piece. In a good story, the beginning, the beginning draws out themes that you wouldn't no totally understand at the beginning. But finally, you made sense of it at the end. And last week, we talked about how the book of Luke, as really good history, subtly introduced you to Jesus' death with some curious word choices right at the beginning. Now the book of Matthew is going to do something really similar. What we see is Jesus' earthly parents giving us a foretaste of the kind of person that Jesus will become. So Mary was engaged to marry Joseph. Now, engagement was a lot more important in those days than it is now. When you got engaged, you actually had to go through a certain ceremony where there were a whole bunch of witnesses, and Joseph would have to give some money to Mary's family. At this point, Mary and Joseph would be called husband and wife, not fiancés. You see that already here. Joseph is called Mary's husband in verse 19, even before they're properly married. After that ceremony, Joseph would spend about a year apart from Mary, working really hard to get some financial stability so that he, they could live together. The idea was that he needed to work, and he couldn't get distracted by anything else. And finally, at the end of the year, they would have a big wedding party that lasts for a, like a week, and they would live together. It's kind of like when war breaks out. You'll often have a, a couple that has a really small private ceremony at the courthouse before the husband goes off to war, and then they have a big wedding a couple years later. They really are married in that year in between, and they would call themselves husband and wife, but they're looking forward to a more complete celebration of their marriage later. Apparently, it was during that year of Joseph working really hard that he finds out that Mary is pregnant. You can imagine how betrayed Joseph would feel. He's working hard now to provide a home for Mary so they can have a future together. And it really does appear that Mary cheated on him and got pregnant with another man's child. Joseph has no idea what actually happened. Think about how hard that would be. He has one particular idea about his future, and he's deferring all of his enjoyment to build that future for himself and for his future family and for Mary. 
And while he's off doing that, he finds out that Mary's pregnant. That future immediately comes crashing down. He would have had to have been angry. But this isn't even the main difficulty he faces. Marriage was an incredibly public institution in that culture. The betrothal is a public act, and everyone would have known that Joseph is supposed to get married. It would be shameful for your wife to be found pregnant before the wedding. How did it happen? Was Joseph involved? And even if he wasn't, he would have been ashamed and embarrassed. In this culture, your honor or shame was everything. They didn't have robust court systems for very long, so the main concern wasn't whether you were innocent, but whether you were publicly, whether you were honorable, and whether people would be associated with you. If you were publicly shamed, you might lose friends and lose neighbors and lose family because they didn't want to be associated with you. It was all about how people would have seen you in society. The embarrassment of being publicly betrayed like this is something that we simply wouldn't be able to understand. Since you have received public betrayal and have been brought public shame, the only way to restore at least part of your honor is to harshly and publicly punish the one who betrayed you. In this case, it would have been standard for Joseph to initiate a public, messy divorce, full of every punishment he could think of so that Mary could be ostracized. It's the only way for him to be returned to a right standing in society. That way, all of the shame falls on Mary, and none of the shame falls on Joseph. And Joseph can come back to society as an honorable man that people are happy to associate with. But instead, Joseph had in mind something different. He was actually legally obligated to divorce Mary, but he was not going to make a big deal of it. Instead, he was going to simply bear some of Mary's shame so he could get out of this situation with her dignity intact. This meant that some people might wonder whether Joseph was somehow guilty or involved with what Mary did. But Joseph decided to be fine with that shame as long as Mary could continue on with her life in public. At this point, the angel announces to Joseph that Mary actually never did anything wrong. This child is from the Holy Spirit, and somehow Mary was pregnant without cheating on him. Now, on the one hand, this is really good news. Joseph hasn't been betrayed, and he can return to the future that he's worked so hard for. But what the angel is telling him to is something much more costly. Nobody's going to believe Mary. Everyone's going to think that she's crazy. But Joseph is going to have to defend her anyway. People will talk, they'll laugh, and they'll be embarrassed to be in the same room with them. Joseph might have had an honorable position in town before, but that's over with. And he did nothing wrong. In fact, he did everything right. Few of the people who had mocked Joseph would have the guts to do what he did. Practically nobody would have the guts to do what Mary did. And I've always wanted to know the rest of the story of Mary and Joseph. It would be so satisfying to have a scene where everyone goes up to them and says, Ah, oh, man. This Jesus guy is awesome. We were wrong all along. There really was a virgin birth. But that didn't happen. Practically the whole rest of their lives, they would be believed to be either adulterers or crazy or both. You can see that in John 8, where Pharisees probably caught on to the fact that nobody knew who Jesus' father was. They taunt him and say, where is your father? No, Mary and Joseph would never be the same again. Oftentimes when we read the stories of Christmas, we see them as their own self-contained story. And it's not hard to see why. The stories are beautiful on their own. We read them just by themselves during Christmas, and they have their own context for us. 
One thing we really rarely notice is that these stories are the beginning of great lawn stories in the books where they appear. It's like if you read just the first couple pages of Moby Dick and analyzed every little word of them without thinking about how it sets up the rest of the book. What Matthew is doing here is setting up his entire gospel and his whole lawn story right from the very beginning. So what I wanted to do is focus on two important themes that you can find in this story of the birth of Jesus and trace them through the whole book of Matthew. And the first one is shame, and the second one is reconciliation. In this story, both Mary and Joseph bear the shame that was necessary in order to make the virgin birth happen. They were happy to be reckoned as common sinners if it brought about the birth of the Messiah. For the whole rest of their lives, nobody would know how brave or how honorable they were. And all of this was just a foreshadowing of the kind of honor that Jesus had as he bore our shame. Jesus was never afraid to bear the shame of others for their sake. He was a friend to tax collector and prostitute alike. Now, hanging out with those kinds of people gets people to talk. Most people would be embarrassed to be seen with them. But Jesus disregarded that shame because his gospel was meant for people like that. It was meant for the kinds of people who people didn't want, want to know or would be ashamed to know. The rightful king of the world had no qualms loving those that others found unlovable. And in bearing their shame, they were honored. They lost some of that stigma as they were able to bear the honor of being a friend of Jesus. Just like with Mary and Joseph, people would talk. What is Jesus doing with those people? Apparently, he must be just like them. And Jesus would let them talk. He was far more honorable and far more brave than any of the people who mocked him. And people would continue considering him shameful until the day he died. All of this was nothing compared to his death. Jesus reached the most shameful point in all of Roman society, dying mostly naked in calculated agony while being mocked by everyone around. In his death, he bore the shame of all of humanity, not least the kind of shame that comes from inventing such an evil form of death. He experienced the worst suffering imaginable, and so he is totally identified with us in every way. So by taking on flesh, God will never really be the same. God has become a human being in Christ, and Christ continues to be a human being even today. Humanity will never be the same either. Our very nature has been infused with the divine life. The power of God lives within us because God has been one of us. And because of that, we can be an entirely new creation, fused with the honor of God himself, and granted the power of sin of, of, over death, the power over sin and death. So if Christ bore our shame, we should be ready to bear the shame of others. Paul tells us to have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself for our sake. It would be a mark if we, that we were doing our jobs right. If people say about us, really? They're hanging out with them? Just like they said about Mary and Joseph, and just like they said it about Jesus. We shouldn't be afraid to make friends with a coworker or a classmate that nobody really wants to hang out with. What that means is that people will associate with you with them. They might be less likely to want to be your friend. They'll talk about you. But you'll let them talk, because you'll be imitating Christ, the most honorable example there is.
In doing all that, you'll show a level of honor and bravery that the ones that mock you won't even begin to understand. So the second theme is reconciliation. You see in this passage a huge conflict, which is resolved almost immediately. Joseph is ready to divorce Mary, and suddenly, just with a dream, the relationship is fully restored. You can imagine the kind of relief that comes from that. Now, as the Old Testament describes it, the relationship between God and his wife, Israel, had been on the rocks forever, for a while. And worse, Israel had come to represent all of humanity. The drama of God's relationship with humanity was playing out on a smaller, more manageable scale in the Old Testament between God and Israel. All of humanity was caught in adultery, constantly unfaithful to the God that made them and deserves the loyalty. And that includes us. We're constantly finding new things to put our trust in. We find new things to worship for all the wrong reasons. God alone deserves our loyalty, but we find it unthinkable to actually give it to him. Nevertheless, Matthew is getting us ready in this story for a far greater reconciliation, even than the one between Mary and Joseph. As God became a human, he built a bridge between God and humanity. There is no longer a separation between us, but God and humanity have literally been inseparably united through the person of Jesus Christ himself. But think in this story, it's shown that Mary did nothing wrong. She had not been unfaithful to her spouse. But Israel, and by extension all of humanity, had been unfaithful with God from the very beginning. It's one thing for Joseph to reconcile with Mary, even if it causes him shame, recognizing that she did nothing wrong. We actually did cheat on God. We actually did give our loyalty to things that don't deserve it. Whether money or politics or beauty or war or human relationships, it would have been unthinkable, even illegal at the time, for Joseph to remain faithful to Mary if she had actually cheated on him. But yet that is exactly what God was doing in Christ. Not only is this a greater reconciliation because it involves all of humanity, it's greater because real sin was actually forgiven. And then a lot of it. It was the kind of sin that destroyed the entire earth that God created. What that means is if God can reconcile with you, even if you were constantly unfaithful to him, then you should be willing to reconcile even with those who sin against you. Paul says in Romans, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, very often we focus on those qualifiers, if it is possible, and so far as it depends on you. And it's true, there are some situations where reconciliation isn't an option, for you, because it takes two. But consider how God handled things. He very easily could have said, as far as it depends on me, there's no way for humanity to be reconciled to me. First, let them repent and live perfectly. Then we can talk about reconciliation. But instead, he literally moved heaven and earth to make reconciliation. He became a person for our sake. So in the same way, so far as it depends on you, should not be seen as an excuse to not to do whatever is possible to reconcile a relationship. At the very least, if someone has done something to damage your relationship with them, and all that you've done to fix it is tell everybody else about how mean they've been to you, you haven't done all you can to reconcile. If God could become a human for our sake to achieve reconciliation, you can go and talk to that person directly about what's bothering you. 
Because that's what it means to be a peace major. You have to make peace. It's not avoiding conflict. It's an active process where you don't let hurt feelings fester and bother you. So what Matthew is doing is using this story of Mary and Joseph to give us just a foretaste of what Jesus will be like. He primes our palate to be ready to see Jesus taking on our shame and reconciling the world to himself. And if Jesus did that, even at great cost to himself, and even when we deserve the shame that came upon us, we should be ready to do that for those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you became one of us for our sake and for our salvation. Make us ready to love and serve the world you created, even and especially when it causes us to shame. Because we recognize that when the world sees as shameful can be honorable, and that what the world sees as weak can be strong. Amen.